Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Radio Free Acton. How you doing today? My name is Mark Vandermoss. So glad to have you along on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. If you want to check out our podcast archives, please do so at radio.acton.org. Lots of different material there for you to listen to over the course of a number of years. They have been recorded, and so there's a wide range of topics and uh, interesting podcasts for you to dig through there to uh, edify your intellectual experience. You can also check out the Acton Institute Power Blog, another great place to go if you want a dose of Acton commentary. Uh, There's lots of great articles and uh, links there for your reading pleasure and for your edification. Check it out at blog.acton.org. We have a great podcast lined up for you today, uh, and it's a podcast that reflects on some of the more difficult issues that we're going through right now culturally and around the world. Uh, it's, it's hard not to see that the times that we're living in right now, at least from the perspective of uh, an American citizen, I suppose, and Christians in America in particular, it's just a very dark time in the world right now. There seems to be a lot of very bad stuff happening uh, around the world, wars and rumors of wars everywhere. And uh, to look to the Middle East uh, in particular, the rise of ISIS and the persecution of longstanding Christian communities in the Middle East is a horrible thing to have to watch. And of course, we encourage that uh, you would continue to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing terrible persecution right now, who are being driven from their homes, who are facing death for the sake of the gospel. It's uh, it's an awful circumstance, and those of us who uh, are in places where we're free to worship as we, uh, as our consciences dictate, I should say, uh, we need to keep those brothers and sisters in our prayers who are not so blessed as we. But turning from that international situation to the home front here, and and of course I speak from a, the context of Christianity in America, uh, there seems to be a lot of. Uh, a lot of trouble in our, within our culture, a lot of trouble, at least as Christians would view it, that the culture itself seems to be turning away from some some very basic historic understandings of how society should work. Basic institutions are being revolutionized away from their Christian underpinnings towards, uh, I guess you could say, being rebuilt in a secular in a secular mold that doesn't take into account uh, the, the Christian underpinnings of things. Uh, the society that we live in seems to be moving away from Christianity, seems to be rejecting some of the basic truths of Christianity, and that's a disturbing thing, a hard thing for Christians to deal with. And so the question is, how do we deal with this? How do we approach life in a society that seems to be rejecting things that we hold dear, ideas that are basic to our understanding of the world? And the fact of the matter is uh, that Christianity is old enough that we have examples to look back on of how people have approached this sort of situation before. One of the thinkers and writers who is dealing with this issue is Oz Guinness. He's a longtime cultural critic and author, and he is the author most recently of a book entitled Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. Oz Guinness, uh, we are fortunate, uh, took some time out of his very busy schedule to join us via the phone here in the Acton Studios And we're doubly fortunate in that he was able to talk with Acton Institute president and one of our co-founders here at Acton, Reverend Robert A. Sirico. Uh, Father Sirico has been a friend of Oz Guinness for quite some time, uh, so he was a great man to uh, have come down and, and sit in our studios and take the interviewer's chair. 
And so I'm going to pass it over to Father Robert. And of course, being the insightful man that he is, he opens with perhaps the most important question of all. Oz Guinness, uh, I'm going to begin with a question that probably is on the minds of at least our non-teetotaling listeners. And that is, are you connected with the brewery? Yes, indeed. I am the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, who was actually a man, this is interesting view it, Acton, a man of deep faith who wanted not only to be an entrepreneur, but also to bring in a strong sense of corporate social responsibility. And he did more for his workers in terms of health care, sports, housing, education, all sorts of things, you know, back in the mid-18th century than many firms do today. Do you get a discount when you buy uh, Guinness? Sadly not. I have to confess, all our family here love the drink, but we're more wine drinkers than beer drinkers. (laughs) I just had to begin with that because I I had a feeling it was on the minds of uh, some of the people listening. You have written uh, a very interesting, provocative, and um, shall I say timely book, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. I underscore that it's timely because we appear to be living in pretty perilous times, don't we? We are quite extraordinary in terms of the global situation. Think of what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, and My argument is that we're in an Augustinian moment, just as St. Augustine had that privilege and extraordinary responsibility to live after 800 years of Roman dominance. So we, in many ways, it looks like we're living after at least 500 years of Western dominance, and we need to have the same courage and confidence in the gospel to create a vision that can go through whatever turbulent period lies ahead. Yes. Um, was it uh, Jerome who, on the the eve of his own death, lamented uh, what was happening? Uh, I think he said, to wake up to find all the world Aryan and the collapse of the Roman Empire thereupon what what is the um the augustinian moment for us well i think on the one hand you can see the decline of the west relative to some of the other countries in the world particularly the rise say of china with its very different civilization and then you can see the relative decline in the united states certainly under the weakness of the current leadership and you can see the position of the christian church here in america is facing huge challenges so put these together we really are facing a moment of extraordinary significance. But I wrote the book because in the last couple of years, people have approached me all over the country saying, is it all over? Are we going the way of Europe and things like this? And so I think against the gloom and doom of many people, we need to recover what it means to trust and to live out the gospel in every sphere of our lives. And then on the other hand, the other reason for writing the book, you remember a few years ago there was the whole discussion Are Christians really changing the world? Many had used that phrase, change the world, make a difference, transform society, Mm -hmm. almost as a cliché. And certain scholars like James Hunter came along and said, well, actually, we're not changing the world, and the way we're going about it, we can't change the world. And again, that left many people with a sense of pessimism. And my argument would be we may not be doing what we should at the moment, but if we really live out the gospel, we can be sure, because what we know of the gospel and its track record in history, we can be sure that it will make a difference. Now, in 
your understanding of this Augustinian moment. You say that Christianity is not necessary for the development of a civilization, obviously, because as you've already noted, you have Chinese civilization, you have all kinds of civilizations that are not uh, Christian. Yet you rather strongly make the case that Western civilization being rooted in Christian ideas and ethics um, draws its strength from that. Um, how is Western civilization different from previous eras? Well, you remember that uh, the late Christopher Hitchens used to go around saying how religion poisons everything. Yes. And we've had endless rehearsals of the evils of the church in the last few years. But people don't stop to ask, what actually are the gifts of the gospel that have made such an incredible difference that's so distinctive? So I put in the book five, at least, you know, our whole culture of giving and caring. For example, as you know well, no organization or civilization history has, has raised so many hospitals as you Catholics have so wonderfully. And that's just a single part of that culture of giving and caring. And then you take the reform movements and then the rise of the universities in the 11th and 12th century. And then the birth of modern science, not ancient science, but modern science. And then supremely, in recent years, the human rights revolution, based not on the Enlightenment, but the fact that humans are precious and have a dignity made in the image of God. And I think all these things which people like Hitchens just overlook absolutely crucial to our Western culture, so that today we are living in a cut flower situa situation. The roots have been cut, the consequences will become clearer and clearer, and we better beware of the choices we're taking, because there will be very severe cultural consequences if we abandon the Christian roots. Well, w why so? If, if the Christian faith is not necessary for the de development and sustaining of a culture... Why would severing Christian roots from Western civilization uh, be detrimental? Well, what would be absolutely clear is that things that come from the teaching and the life and the work of Jesus himself could not be sustained in a cut-flower situation. And I think historians would agree with that. Notions such as Christian humaneness would simply not be there without the teaching of Christ. If, if for example, we go the way of Nietzsche, and we start to understand everything is the will to power, you'd be in a very, very different situation from Christian notions of compassion. But then again, the question is, in today's culture, we look, say, our rivals in the Western world would be clearly uh, atheism, secularism, and secular humanism. Do they have the capacity? Take something like the image of God giving us a view of human dignity. You know, when I was a student in London, I believe you were in London, too, at university. Yes. You know, yes. I knew Bertrand Russell, and he would have said again and again, of course, we as atheists have as high view of human dignity as you have as Christians. And the humanists of that day pretended they did. But now you read articles by, say, Stephen Pinker at Harvard, the uselessness of dignity or the stupidity of dignity. Yeah. Atheists are floundering to give the solid basis for many of the things that are precious and distinctive in the West. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see an undermining of dignity, of freedom, uh, of um, notions like justice and so on, which are going to be pressed into very different directions. And forgiveness? Where would you put forgiveness in that? Well, wow, you probably know the book The Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary story of his own experience in a death camp. And then he He's asked to forgive, cut the story short, which is a shame. 
He's asked to forgive a dying Nazi officer and brushes off his hand. He won't. And then he stops his story and he says to world leaders, 50 of them in the first edition, what should I have done? What could I have done? What would you do? And what's absolutely fascinating is the, for instance, all the Jews say you did right. No one can forgive a murderer. And there's a chilling quality to the discussion of forgiveness. And the two that are absolutely magnificent, one of them is Martin Mahdi. And they, they, as Christians, they point out, forgiveness cuts off all the baggage of the past. And forgiveness opens up a freedom for a new future. Mm-hmm. And you can see in a very simple way how the Christian gospel is distinctively different from most of the ethics and religions of the world, and it makes a huge difference. You see the church uh, in this modern context as uh, susceptible to seductions, which corrupt the way in which the church engages with the modern world. Could you speak about that uh, a bit? Well, my my argument, and it comes out of a study of sociology for many years, including under people like Peter Berger, my argument would be that modernity, not ideas, modernism and postmodernism, many people get that wrong because they're simply a set of ideas. You can change your mind and not be one of those in five minutes of thinking. But modernity, ITY, which is the whole constellation of things that have arisen since the Industrial Revolution and now globalization, but it includes cell phones and everything, modernity has done more damage to the Christian faith than all the persecutors in history. Not because it's directly opposed, like, say, communism, but rather, in many ways, it shapes us without our being aware. Often, at its best, it distorts the faith. And I'd have to give examples of it. For instance, you look at the way our big cities shift churches from a movement of the integration of faith to a fragmentation. The, The comment that the Christian faith in California was, privately engaging, publicly relevant. Well, that's undercutting integration and the Lordship of Christ, but it's sort of inbuilt into modernity, and we have to be aware of it if we're going to resist it. What about um, the subtle forms of worldliness that affect the Christian community? Uh, Public opinion? Yes, we we could go around a whole number of these in the book. I've made a three-page argument against the mania for metrics, you know, big data and all this sort of stuff, and especially measurable outcomes. Because while numbers are incredibly important at one level, they don't describe the heart of what we're about. And you can see today that in an age of information and big data, we're just inundated with this, and people just chase what's the most rather than what's the best, and what's popular rather than what's true. And it's a kind of subtle form of wilderness, but it's a very deep one. Or you could take things like consumerism, we're in our consumer culture. Everything's turned into a preference, uh, the pick of your choice. So, you know, I happen to be an Anglican, or I, you happen to be a Catholic, and this sort of thing, as if it's just a matter of preference mm-hmm. rather than a matter of truth and authority. Right. And you can see there's, there are hundreds of these sort of examples of how the church in America is so profoundly weak, I would argue, because it's so extraordinarily worldly at many points. It's more shaped by the world than it is by the scriptures and the gospel. I understand some churches, before deciding to plant a church, as they say, in a given area, will do a marketing survey to see what mm-hmm. the people want 
uh, in a church. Now, on the business level, that sounds plausible because if you have a product, you want to make sure you have a, a, a market for that product. Elaborate what's what the problem here is with the the, the gospel. Well, you met some decades ago when the church growth movement came in. They said we want to grow churches, quote, on new grounds. In other words, not on the power of the gospel or whatever, but on management, marketing, sociology, psychology. And one of the books that came out right after that was called On Marketing the Church, said this, in marketing the church or anything, the audience, not the message, is sovereign. And that led to what became the seeker-sensitive, audience-driven movement and so on. And in its extremes, it followed the terrible course of Protestant liberalism by chasing the culture despisers of the gospel, but instead of winning them, becoming like them. And particularly in certain branches of evangelicalism, like the so-called emergent church, this has gone to the extremes where they're so close to what the world is believing that there's nothing particularly Christian about it. It's another form of gospel. And as we can see from Protestant liberalism, that's a recipe for institutional as well as spiritual suicide. Sure. And a church like, say, the Episcopal Church is shrinking visibly year by year because it's lost the gospel. Yeah. This really brings us to the edge of a conversation about capitalism. Um, what is your view of market capitalism's relationship to Christianity? Well, you know, that's a controversial topic in terms of the rise of capitalism and Max Weber's theories and so on. That's why but I asked I have it. Absolute, sorry? That's why I asked it. Yes. No, I, I tend to believe there's much more to that than many of the critics agree. But what is absolutely certain is that capitalism, in its incredible freedom and its ability to produce wealth, requires certain virtues such as uh, integrity, honesty, and things like this. And without them, it will go to extremes, which will be counted, as we're seeing today, by more and more regulations which kill the goose that lays the golden egg. So capital capitalism assumes and requires something that goes beyond business per se. And I think that's where we, as followers of Jesus, have a tremendous amount to contribute. So, so this gets to um, a point you've made even before Renaissance in your other works on the call uh, about vocation, uh, especially as this pertains to faith and work. Could you elaborate that in connection with capitalism? Well, what Martin Luther did, and certainly in effect, as well as what he tried to do, was give the sense that you have in the scriptures that calling is everyone everywhere, in everything. So a lawyer was fulfilling his calling in law, someone washing the dishes, as Tyndale put it, was doing it in that. And you can see today that Pope John Paul II's teaching is closer to the best of Martin Luther than many, say, evangelicals are today, because that notion of dualism, that faith is something spiritual but not secular, has crept in again in large parts of the American church. And if we're to recover, we're still huge numerically, Christians in this country. If we're to recover the saltiness and the light-bearing quality, one of the notions that will need to be recovered is this sense of calling. It's everyone, everywhere, in every sphere of their lives. And I know you stress that strongly at Acton, but I think that's going to be so important for the entire church and the entire country. Then this brings us—I mean, you can't talk about work— 
or the engagement with capitalism without the engagement of the culture as a whole. Where does the vocation fit in the the calling to impact culture, to build institutions, to um, pr- produce beauty uh, and culture, reciprocal cultures of support, um, and this whole Augustinian moment. Is this what you're talking about when you talk about the Augustinian moment? To, Absolutely. To- and I think the recovery of calling is so important. I remember about 20 years ago, there's a movement called Strategic Callings, as if we could decide what occupations were more strategic for the church in the country. And my response was, no, God gives gifts to his people, different gifts to everyone, and they equally have different gifts and different callings in all the hundreds of spheres in American life. So that's how God deploys us. But the challenge is for all of us in the spheres in which we're working to live out our faith, to pursue truth, to cultivate goodness and so on, and to create beauty, and so doing to reflect the creation order that he's given us and stand against so much of the destructive elements the other side. So I view calling as a kind of link between faith and action out into the public sphere. And a way of doing so without any of us being wise enough, we, we can't save the world, we can't manage the world, we can produce pretty good organizations, but they're all limited. And yet God's call to each of us who follow him you know, is unlimited. And I think if we recover that again, the church in America will be extremely powerful. And put, put simply, calling is the key to the recovery of the integrity and the effectiveness of faith. Os Guinness, thank you so much for being with us. The book again, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times, published by InterVarsity Press. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you as always. Well, that will wrap it up for this week's edition of Radio Free Acton. I want to thank uh, Reverend Robert A. Sirico, the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. He maintains a very busy schedule, so it's always a treat to have him come down and sit in the interviewer's chair here at Radio Free Acton and uh, be able to uh, participate with us like that. And he did a fantastic job talking with Oz Guinness. Of course, I also want to thank Oz Guinness for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us today about his new book, which uh, if you... Need to write it down yet? It's Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times, and it's available at all your online retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the like, and you can probably also find it at your local bookshop. Please do check it out if you get a chance, and uh, remember to bookmark radio.actin.org for all our podcast archives, and check out the Acton Institute Power Blog at blog. .actin.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We will see you next time as we bring you another edition of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Good day, everybody. (laughs) 